Hey, thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you're looking for a new podcast, check out How to Do Everything. It's a survival guide for all of life's trials and tribulations, like bear attacks, romantic conundrums, and romantic bear attacks. <laughs> what is romantic about a bear attack? I have you not seen know, The Revenant I yet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there's a chance you'll find it helpful. But if not, you'll definitely enjoy hearing about other people's problems. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. What's the best kind of bear to be attacked by? Koala. Koala? A koala isn't even a real bear. Thanks, dream killer. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here just a few days out from the biggest day of the presidential election so far, Super Tuesday. Let me say that again. Super Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know you were going to do that. (laughs) And, you know, it feels like we may have hit a moment in this campaign where the candidates stop being polite and start getting real. (laughs) We're going to look ahead to next week, talk about Thursday night's intense Republican debate, talk about a major endorsement for Donald Trump by Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, and of course, end the show with Can't Let It Go, where I believe someone is going to tell us whether a certain presidential candidate is the Zodiac Killer. Someone will death tell you that. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech in the campaign. Okay, so we are going to attempt to keep this roundup a little bit shorter today because we've already done two episodes this week uh, rounding up some of the voting that happened. Please go listen. So let's start by listening to some of the best tape from last night's GOP debate held in Texas and broadcast on CNN. And warning listeners, this is about a minute long and it will feel much longer. Donald claims to care you know why? I didn't about want him. To, Don- but he sent me his Donald, book Donald, with his autograph. Donald, I understand rules Mr. are very Trump, hard for you. They're very confusing. You're doing a great job. I have his book. Okay, yeah, that, 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 that's a TV show, not in Thank you, thank you for the book. Thank you for the book. Donald, you can get back on your mats now. There's a lot of fun up here tonight, I have to tell you. Thank you for the book. Donald, relax. Go ahead, I'm relaxed. You're the basket case. Go ahead. Go ahead, don't get nervous. Go ahead. My name is. My name is. Is this a whole one continuous thing? Yes. 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 You're losing so badly watching this. You don't know what's happening. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Wolf, I'm going to ask that my time not be deducted when you yell at me. Oh, my God. The latest debate. Gentlemen, please. I'm going to get my answer. He doesn't get to yell at me. I want to move on. I want to move on. These are the rules. Excuse me. He called me a liar and interrupted me. Wow. It's still going on. Oh, my God. Do I not get a response? You'll get plenty of response, so stand by. My name was. I want to talk. I want to talk about ISIS right now. <laughs> that was Ben Carson. <laughs> I want to talk about ISIS. Yeah, that was a Real Housewives episode. That is total Real Housewives when they're all gathering around drinking and having fights about who's friends with who. It's the re- that was a reality show. So I was sitting there like thinking of how to write about this for the story, and I was like, "Is this reality TV? Is this Jerry Springer? Is this like a wrestling like cage match? Like, what is the best it's way like to describe a, it's what like is happening?" It's like a real world house meeting gone wrong, where everyone's just like. Ah! Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's that is stop being polite and start getting. And real. here's the thing: I remember I asked in this podcast months ago when it was starting to get snippy, how long will it be this combative? And the theory was once the field starts to narrow, people will grow up. 
but people are still being crazy and mean. Well, I think what's happening here is it's the long overdue moment where the rest of the field realizes that Donald Trump is running away with the nomination and they need to do everything they can to attack him. So Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio hardly said anything. They said a few things about each other, but both of them were just throwing everything they had at Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump, who as we know, does have a lot of reality TV experience, would, would would not give an inch. He would cut them off. He would push back. He would say, like, really mean things about them. And that kind of led to, you know, several moments over the course of the debate that sounded exactly like that. The thing that I want, my question about the debate is, like, it was the 10th debate. It's the first time they actually went in at Trump. And it's like, was it too little too late? I mean, I, mm-hmm. and we don't obviously know the answer to that question, but are we too close to Super Tuesday to kind of change the trajectory and the momentum of this thing. I guess Texas is a big question for Cruz. And if he wins there, it'll keep him going. And he, he's leading. But I don't get the sense that what happened last night, like, slowed the Donald Trump phenomenon. And as we mentioned, talking about the momentum of Trump, this just happened Friday afternoon. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has endorsed Donald Trump. There is no one who is better prepared to provide America with the strong leadership uh, that it needs both at home and around the world, um, than Donald Trump. Uh, wow. He is looking at the five people mm-hmm. on that stage last night, um, the clear standout, um, and the person who will do exactly wow. what needs to be done to make America um, a leader around the world again. That's a change of tune. <laughs> and two, is this all just to spite Marco Rubio, who he can't stand? There's got to be a certain element of that, right? That is such a change of tune, though. Right. I will say this. This is one of the very few moments where I actually I, I turned the corner and saw this happening on a TV, and my mouth actually did drop, and I just kind of stared at it. And then I was texting with someone I know who spent a lot of time in Trenton covering Chris Christie, who literally did not believe me until I sent a <laughs> screenshot of the television press conference to him. And only then was like, okay, wow. I saw your jaw drop. It was a real jaw drop. It was it was a literal but jaw drop. does this change anything? I mean, who was waiting with bated breath to see who Chris Christie was going to endorse? Well, here's the thing with Chris Christie. I think he legitimizes Trump. I mean, he was an establishment candidate. He's a governor, an elected governor twice. Uh, he was the head of the Republican Governors Association his his endorsement in 2012 really mattered. And here here is a guy saying the person who I think is has is best equipped to defeat Hillary Clinton is the guy who is throwing out the playbook. But on those same stages in previous debates, he was basically saying this guy is silly season and is entertainment. And he did not take Trump seriously when he was in the race. Correct. Yeah, like, there's no question about that. And yeah. Trump was equally critical of Chris Christie, especially when it came to the George Washington Bridge scandal. But, you know, I think we've seen again and again, especially when it comes to the point where the dropped out person goes and, and endorses somebody else. People are able just to just move forward and discount the things they've said before. But to me, I think what and I know there was some division in our newsroom in terms of how big of a deal this was. But I, I'm with you, Tamara, where I think this is a big deal because I think it is a high profile Republican, part of the establishment we've spent so much time talking about standing on stage backing Donald Trump. And the question we've all had is, how does Donald Trump not end up as the Republican nominee? And it seems to be if the entire apparatus of the Republican Party, you know, circles around someone else and hears somebody say, no. I'm going with Trump. So does Christie's endorsement start a wave of other establishment endorsements? Like, does he give others permission to do the same? 
I don't know, man. I just like I feel like I don't know about so much because, as Chris Christie said, Donald Trump has torn up the rule book. Yeah. This just seems like yet another situation where Trump's opponents take him on. It's in the news for like 12 hours and then. Trump finds a way to win. It also reminds me, John McCain always has the saying where he says, uh, you should never wrestle with a hog because you just get dirty and the hog likes it. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, there was, a, a there was a feeling of that, you know, where they, they were going after Trump and you understand like tactically why they have to do that. But I'm not sure that that makes anyone walk away and then be like, oh, well, I was for Trump, but now I'm for Rubio or now I'm for Cruz, you know? Yeah. Right. And they just, Trump, first of all, Trump has like a, a a reaction and a response for every one of these attacks that that comes against him and, and then he kind of like turns it to something that like hits the Achilles heel of, of the person he's talking about like there was this moment where Marco Rubio kind of tried to get into the things that have been a constant of Trump's campaign every night it says five things everyone's dumb he's gonna make America great Senator again Rubio. we're gonna win 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 Senator he's Rubio, winning in the please. polls and the lines around the state <laughs> Senator Rubio, please. Somebody. Senator Rubio, please. I have a question, and maybe this is off, but like, how much do these live audiences contribute to the cage match nature of these debates? Uh, I think it's huge. And I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like this, in the 2016 race, seems like they've encouraged the cheering and the jeering. The like American idleness of of the debates, which before it used to be like no applause. It was supposed to be like a muted room. And it, it does to me, I agree with you completely. Like, if there were no live audience, wouldn't they just talk? Well, we're talking about this, we should mention that Marco Rubio had one particular big fan last night. For hiring illegal workers on one of his projects. Yeah, he did. For using illegal immigrant labor to do it. The second... So you're going to be starting a trade war against your own ties and your own suits. (laughs) Well, I don't know anything about bankrupting four companies. You bankrupted four (laughs) (laughs) Selling watches in Manhattan. Oh my god. This debate is insane. She's like the human vuvuzela. Um, I do want to say one thing, though, that I think is maybe important is, so I had a lot of conversations on the Hill this week with both Republican members of Congress and Republican staffers and Republican campaign consultants among the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party. And a lot of their conversation now is how much of campaign malpractice was committed in 2016 in that... Mm. They're just now the establishment, however, the shorthand we use for the establishment is just now realizing that Donald Trump was a serious candidate and that the candidates, all of the campaigns, this is not just the party, but from Jeb Bush to everybody never took him seriously enough. And that in the obituary of this race, is it the forces that did not want Donald Trump to be the nominee, how bad the malpractice was? But this is just a continuation, I think, of the establishment not seeing national trends as they happen. Like, they didn't see the Tea Party coming. They haven't seen Trump coming. They're not seeing these things that are happening outside of the Beltway. I would agree with you, but I would also say that a dynamic in this race was everybody was waiting for somebody else to do it. It was like everybody was getting in the back seat and waiting for someone else to drive. I think because it's this dual thing where you don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee, but you don't want to anger the voters that are showing up and supporting him. Mm. And does going after him taint yourself and turn them off to you? But where else do those voters go in a general? They're not going to vote in hate for Hillary Clinton. 
and this is the conversation I had with a lot of Republicans this week that said, is this where the malpractice was? Did, how, how badly did the anti-Trump forces in the party miscalculate hmm. this election? Hmm. Scott, last night, the establishment guys on the stage did start going after Trump. What were some of the lines of attack that they used? I mean, just just, just pick anything. They, they got into his business record, pointing out that immigrants in the country illegally helped build Trump Tower. They got into Trump University, which is uh, the heart of a lawsuit filed by New York's attorney general saying that it was basically a fraud. They got into his stance on the issues like health care, where Trump has suggested that he'd be for some sort of like universal health care system. They attacked him for his general Trumpiness. The fact that Dennis Rodman was on Celebrity Apprentice was was mentioned by Ted Cruz. But but the thing about what Susan was saying about how uh, people have just kind of held back on making these attacks. What's interesting to me is how long some of this stuff that was brought up on the debate stage has been in the public record. Just take immigrants in the country illegally who built Trump Tower. The source of that was a New York Times article from the early 90s. This uh, Trump University lawsuit, high-profile lawsuit brought by New York's attorney general, I think more than a year ago, it's been out there and nobody's dug into it until now, just days before Super Tuesday, when Trump has had double-digit wins in three big early states. So, Sue, whether this stuff sticks or not, if Trump does become the nominee... How are people in Congress, how are they feeling about that possibility? Because now it it seems real. Yes. And I think coming out of Nevada, uh, <sighs> that it became even more real. The three wins in a row changed the conversation. And I would say loosely I would describe Republicans on the Hill, and I think this is probably emblematic of Republicans at large, of the way they're thinking about Trump now is you have the really angry, we have to find a way to stop him camp, which is probably best illuminated by guys like Lindsey Graham, who are like, we should do anything it takes. You still have the Marco Rubio guys. Marco Rubio still has the most endorsements on Capitol Hill. He's got the most like visual support. And when you talk to Marco guys, they're like, we still think he can do it. There's still a path. Can't tell you a state I think he's going to win. But if he's strong number two, it's just sort of this gaming out hope and a prayer for Rubio. And then there is an increasingly large number of Republicans who are, are beginning to realize that Trump is their likely nominee and they're starting to get on board. He got his first two endorsements this week from members of Congress. Uh, one good example I'll give you is I talked to David Jolly. He's a Republican from Florida. He's a House member, but he's running for the Senate this year. So he's got his own stake in this election. And he was one of the members that called for Trump to drop out of this race, very publicly said he should get out after Trump made his comments about saying we should not allow Muslims to enter the country. And so I said to him, you know, do you think Trump's going to be the nominee? And he's like, well, I don't know if it's for sure, but it's looking that way. And I said, how does a guy like you run in a state like Florida with Trump at the top of the ticket? And he was like, well, there's things we agree on. And he supports, huh. you know, we agree on veterans and we oh, agree wow. on, you know, certain policies. And I, I would I would run on the things that we agree on, which is a really remarkable change of tune for a guy that a couple months ago thought he should drop out of the race and was a disgrace on the party. Well, that happened more and more as Trump. If, if we wake more? up March 2nd and Donald Trump has swept on Super Tuesday, yes. Huh. And the attacks did not stop last night. Uh, while we were in the studio, Marco Rubio said this. He went backstage. He was having a meltdown. Ooh. First, he had this little makeup thing applying, like, makeup around oh his goodness. mustache because he had one of those sweat mustaches. Then, then he asked for a full-length mirror. I don't know why because the podium goes up to here, but he wanted a full-length oh. mirror. Maybe to make sure his pants weren't wet. I don't know. Oh. Then, wow. 
That was very Trumpian. They're playing the dozens. And that is exactly the critique that Trump has had of Rubio. Jiu-jitsu. This is like... The, the thing with this, this whole campaign has been filled not with just insults, but like physical insult. Personal insult. Personal, physical, like against someone's body. Yeah. There like, is a you're, lot. You're this ugly. Guy, yeah, this guy is saying that Trump wet his pants. But I would say, like, the Republicans I talked to this week, this is a great example where they were saying, where was this Marco Rubio six huh. months ago? Huh. Yeah. Is it too little too late? But, That's the but, question. But is this Marco Rubio really good for any of our politics? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is that, I, this is not the race Marco Rubio Are we going to, to look back on this election and say, dear God, how do we let it get this nasty and stay this nasty? Right, because Marco Rubio's whole thing was to be this, like, statesman type, yeah. you know, up-and-coming guy. He never took the bait on any questions. And now here he is realizing this is what he has to do. Yeah. And now we need to take a break, Uh, but we will be right back and we're going to talk about the Democrats and we're going to take a listener question. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the Great Courses Plus video learning service, providing unlimited access to a wide variety of videos on topics like history, science, literature and personal development. You can watch the Great Courses Plus on your TV, tablet, laptop or phone. At thegreatcoursesplus.com slash politics, they're giving listeners an opportunity to watch The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, as well as hundreds of other courses free. To access this offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash politics. Okay, we're back. And on the Democratic side of the race, there is a big vote happening Saturday in South Carolina, uh, Hillary Clinton is expected to win and and expected to win pretty handily, especially because of her support among African-Americans. But something happened this week at a fundraiser she was doing in South Carolina that has really taken over the political world. Let's hear a little bit of the sound. So I think we've got a very, uh, I think we've got somebody saying here, we have we to bring them for to Okay, we'll talk I'm about not it. a super predator. So at this point, a young woman, a Black Lives Matter activist named Ashley Williams, stands up and holds a banner that says, we have to bring them to heal. So she's talking about the 1994 crime bill signed Um, into law by Hillary's husband, Bill Clinton. Lots of critics in the Black Lives Matter movement say that that led to a wave of mass incarceration of a lot of black men. Because it basically upped sentencing, right? Exactly. It upped sentencing, it reduced parole, three strikes and you're out. It did all kinds of things that really accelerated a path that the country had already been on for 20 years. The things that a lot of states and people from both parties are in the last few years trying to unwind. change. Exactly. And this bring them to heel phrase was at the tail end of a now resurfacing video of Hillary Clinton defending the crime bill in which she calls teen criminals and gangs, quote, super predators who must be brought to heel. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president So she's walked back those statements out. recently and said she wouldn't have said that today, correct? Yeah, she said that the, she shouldn't have used those words then and she wouldn't use them now. But here's the thing. We shouldn't act like this woman is speaking for the majority of black voters in South Carolina. You know, I spent a week there. We've seen the poll numbers. She's expected to win a clear majority of the black vote. And there are lots of black voters that I spoke to in South Carolina who said, I lived through the crime bill. 
a lot of black voters supported it. And I saw what life was like in big cities before the crime bill and something had to happen. Well, and two thirds of the Congressional Black Caucus supported the crime bill. Bernie Sanders voted for For the the crime crime bill. bill. Now, he says he voted for it for other reasons, because it also contained uh, gun control measures and the Violence Against Women Act. But the reality is the 90s were a different time. And the party was in a different place. And it's just interesting to me how much time Hillary Clinton still has to spend basically like apologizing for aspects of the Clinton administration. You've got this issue. You've got the welfare reform issue that Bill Clinton pushed through. You've got the Defense of Marriage Act, which both Bill and Hillary Clinton have aggressively apologized for. There's all these things that at the time were viewed as strategic centrist moves by Clinton that now they're basically almost embarrassed about. But also, the reason that she is tied so closely to Bill's presidency is because she tied herself to that presidency. They always presented themselves as a political partnership. She was in the room. She was lobbying for these bills. She takes credit for some of the accomplishments of that time as well. I mean, she, there is no way that she separates herself from that presidency. She was a part of it. Oh, it also yeah. shows you that voters see no daylight between Bill and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That they are they are one amorphous unit yes. than that. I can't, I mean, as far as like a presidential candidate goes, I don't think anyone has ever been as defined by their spouse. Yeah. And she's Obviously, been trying to now. Obviously, a lot of people have had yeah. a president as, yeah. a, as a spouse, but that your view of Bill Clinton is absolutely intertwined with your view of Hillary And what's Clinton. crazy is when I talk to black voters that liked Hillary, they liked her more because of Bill. When I talk to black voters that didn't like Hillary, they hated her because of Bill. What does Super Tuesday, I mean, we focus so much about Republicans and Super Tuesday and what it means for Trump, but what about Super Tuesday for Democrats? There are some must-win states for Bernie Sanders on Super Tuesday. Vermont, obviously. <sighs> um, but also Massachusetts and Minnesota. He's making a real play in Minnesota. But doesn't Bernie need to, like, beat expectations in some way on Super Tuesday to, to keep momentum behind Well, his, his whole thing is that I mean, he's winning already... winning Vermont's be- not good but, enough. But his whole thing has been that he's already beaten all expectations of his, can- uh, right. of his campaign it's period. It's like the Marco right? Rubio problem, but you got to win somewhere. Yes. And what is, where does he have to win that makes people go, oh, man, this really New is New Hampshire a was that for a second. For a second. That was <laughs> yeah. one state, though. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that, that momentum has yes. to keep going or yes. it fizzles. I think Oklahoma... Is a big one. But but that's that is the thing. The way the Democratic race is done, it isn't winner take all. It's proportional. So he's just going to keep notching and keep adding. But how do you go beyond just adding and outperforming expectations? You have to actually right. win big somewhere. At, at some point, the beating expectations is kind of irrelevant. Uh, you know, Marco Rubio's of the world and Bernie Sanders of the world need to you know, take the front runners head on and actually beat them. Third place finishes don't matter, I think, into March. And with that, let's move on to a listener question. Zach emailed us to ask, when a candidate like Jeb bows out of the race, what happens to all the money they have left over in the bank? Is it given back to the donors or does the candidate still have control of it? Well, one, how much money is left? They spend a lot of it, right? Oh, there's basically nothing left in that bank. How much? So the super PAC is really where all the money was for yeah. Jeb Bush. And they raised something like about $118 million. Oh, and they essentially, I talked to Peter Overby, who's our campaign finance reporter. He tells me that the Right to Rise super PAC essentially spent all but a couple hundred thousand dollars of it. Wow. And that 
money that's left over likely will go to accountants and lawyers to shut the thing down. Candidate PACs, I I cannot speak necessarily specifically to Jeb. I don't know how much money is left in there, but I would say broadly candidate PACs, when it's over, they get to keep that money. It very rarely goes back to donors. They often have debts to still pay Mm. and they can still use it for political contributions of their own. So a lot of times if a member of Congress is retiring, but they're sitting on a million bucks, they'll use it to write out checks, return some political favors to the people that supported them. But you're probably not getting your donation back if that's the question. So the no. New York Times recently rounded up all of the money that Jeb Bush's campaign spent and how he spent it. Mm. Apparently, um, $115,800 was spent just on valet parking. <laughs> $48,544 was spent on Las Vegas expenditures. Consultants costed $10 million. Pizza was a little under five grand, but this was the one that was interesting to me. There was a category called clubbing. That was $94,000. Well, the campaign was based in Miami. That's what I was going to no, say about ballet. Clubs. It was Yale Club, Union League Club of Chicago, Nantucket's Westmore Club. Everywhere you go in Miami, there's valet. It's like yeah. a valet parking town. So that seems like a reasonable <laughs> expense in Miami. Well, and actually, fundraising cost money. You got a valet park, all those people that pay $10,000 to come see oh, yeah. But My- what is remarkable is that the consultants made $10 million to lose that campaign. Yeah. And they're going to get hired again, probably, for someone else's campaign. My favorite uh, right to rise expenditure was at one point in New Hampshire, they were sending out video. Basically, they were mailing documentaries of Jeb Bush to voters, but it wasn't like a DVD. It was like a video player. So you open this package oh and it God. starts playing a video t- to you. Somebody said it cost that per mailer? It had to cost a lot. And, and somebody compared it to it's like it's like if I could mail you a pre-roll YouTube video. How great would that be? Oh, man. So this was just like mocked. I'm going to mail you a piece of the Internet. Okay, uh, and with that, we're going to take one more quick break, and then we will be right back with Can't Let It Go. More about the Internet. We'd like to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who brings us the following message, Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in politics. Okay, we're back, and it's time for Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise, Sam. I got a doozy this week. <laughs> um, this was brought to my attention by one Scott Detrow. Shout out, Scott Deasy. In working on one of his stories, he said, you know, there's this like little online conspiracy theory about Ted Cruz being the Zodiac Killer. And I was like, wait, wait, wait stop. What? <laughs> so he's just like, oh, yeah, this exists. And I was like, whoa. So I, I dug deep. Apparently, it began with a tweet in 2013. And since then, a variety of internet Twitter comedians have kept this conspiracy theory alive. Tweeting, tweeting, tweeting. They sell t-shirts. They sell t-shirts now. But in the last GOP debate, one guy on Twitter was like, we should make this trend. Because CBS was doing a Google search ticker. 
So the top searches for candidates would pop up on the debate screen. Oh. They made Is Ted Cruz the Zodiac Killer <laughs> trend on the CBS GOP debate screen on TV. <laughs> and since then, it's gotten even bigger. There are T-shirts for sale. There are at least two books for Whoa. sale on Amazon about Ted Cruz being the Zodiac Killer. Books? Books. But here's the thing. Ted Cruz was born after the Zodiac murders. So everyone that's doing Not that, after all the Zodiac murders. <laughs> just after the first Zodiac murders. But all the folks that we talk to, basically, say, we know there's no chance in hell this is the case. We just do it because we think this guy is creepy. I think this actually uh, th- this gets into a story that I did this week where candidates always have to deal especially these days with with some sort of like joking attack on them on the internet that actually becomes a problem because if it gains steam it shows up in the Google results. So I talked to the staffer who solved Rick Santorum's Google problem this week which was, we're not going to get into it, but much more serious than Ted Cruz. But the thing is when you type in "Is Ted Cruz in Google?" Zodiac Killer is number like, two. Yeah, number two. The first <laughs> is the first is "Is Ted Cruz American?" Then it is "Ted Cruz Zodiac Killer." Of course, Ted Cruz is an American. We should say. So I emailed this campaign to say, "Hey, we're doing a story about this conspiracy theory. We know it's not true. We're going to point that out, but I want to know if you want to comment about the theory itself." They haven't written back, but just this week, public policy polling wrapped one of their polls with a question asking whether Ted Cruz was the Zodiac killer. (laughs) Public policy polling being the internet troll of polling (laughs) organizations. I think I have the data on that if y'all want, but it doesn't matter. Okay, they found that 38% of Florida voters think it's possible that Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer. 10% say for sure he is. Another 28% say that they are just not sure. My other favorite one was the guy that was following Ted Cruz around with the poster that said, Ted Cruz loves Nickelback. I love Nickelback. Listen, I I do. What? Creed and Nickelback, they had some jams. Photograph was a great song, and I'm sorry that I'm not sorry about that. That is a very unpopular opinion you just voiced. I'm saying it right here, right now. Twitter, come at me, bro. Do you have any Nickelback on your phone right now? I mean, that could be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Detrow, what is your can't let it go? So this is actually kind of an offshoot of what Sam was talking about. Uh, I took a look at uh, Google in the campaign this week and and how much campaigns actively work to get things like whether they're the Zodiac Killer low on the search results and the things that they like high on the search results. But um, one thing that I saw, and I talked to one Republican strategist, Patrick Ruffini, who we've actually had on election night here at NPR giving analysis, he's been paying really close attention to Google Trends data and saying that it actually kind of functions as an exit poll of sorts, looking at the early primary states. Now, this is not exact. There's a lot of problems with it, and it doesn't really work on the Democratic side at all. But hey, exit polls are kind of flawed, Exactly. Too. <laughs> but, but looking at the Republican side, if you study who voters are searching for in the hours before for early primaries, you've been, you could actually catch some of the trends that happened before they happened. Like in New Hampshire, John Kasich searches went through the roof in the day before uh, the New Hampshire primary, and he finished a surprising second. In Iowa, searches for Trump went down and down as the caucuses approached, and searches for Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio went up and up. And if you look at New Hampshire and South Carolina, the final percentage of search results was almost the exact same huh. order and exact same percentage that the candidates finished in, which is really interesting. But that's for the GOP, right? Exactly. So this doesn't work at all for the Democratic side. And we think that's just because one candidate has been on the public scene for decades and decades and decades, and people don't really feel the need to Google her. And this is, of course, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, a relative newcomer who people do need to Google. So a lot of voters are searching Bernie Sanders, and he consistently outpaces Clinton in terms of search results. 
But on the Republican side, I find this really interesting. And I know I will be looking at Google Trends on a Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday evening to get a sense of what we can expect that night. Huh. Do you think Google knows who's going to win the election? Think about all the Google data and the they Illuminati. Have. No. <laughs> Sue Davis, what 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 are you obsessed with this week? Okay, I'm going to ask you guys to indulge me for a minute. I feel like every time I go on the podcast, my my can't let it go is always political. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm coming to you with a non-political can't let it go this week. Do that. This morning I got up and I looked at my phone as we all do first thing in the morning and I'm scrolling my Twitter feed as we all do in the morning and I start to see all these tweets that there's a new conspiracy theory. And the conspiracy theory is that Katy Perry is actually John Benet Ramsey. Now, what? Yes. Which and maybe because it's just it's been a crazy week and the Supreme Court fights. <laughs> and sometimes you just need a laugh. And so for me this week, the thing that I was laying in bed this morning and I saw that, I would just say that sometimes you need a laugh. That gave me my laugh this week. And I've now read like everything behind the Katy Perry, John Benet Ramsey conspiracy. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It gave me a laugh. And if we have to tie it to politics, this is how I'll loosely tie it. JonBenet Ramsey lived in Colorado. Swing state. Colorado is a very important swing state. Katy Perry, a Hillary Clinton supporter. You do the math. <laughs> and that's what I call full circle. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to top that. <laughs> what can you not let go this week, Tamara? Well, candidates often inspire artists. And an artist best known for the song Baby Beluga. Baby Beluga in the deep blue sea. Swim so it's like half of us are swim mouthing so the words free. and half of us do not know what the words know are. This is. So <laughs> this is uh, Rafi Kavukian. And that he is a name. Sounds like an NPR Baby. name. <laughs> oh, I started. I'm sorry. And he goes just by Rafi. Just Rafi. Um, he was huge in the 90s as a children's musician. Huge. Well, he supports Bernie Sanders for president. And so he wrote a song, The Wave of Democracy, for Bernie Sanders. In this time of turning, this time of yearning through Mm-mm. the wave um. of democracy. Oh, Rafi. Yeah, so this is a big step down from the Raffi tape that I owned at one point in my life. So this is it. Yeah. How many views on YouTube does this have? Not a lot. (laughs) And here's the thing. Raffi is Canadian. Get him out of here. But, you know, Raffi really, based on the Twitter traffic, and yes, I do follow Raffi on Twitter, um, he believes that this could be part of, you know, the political revolution. The movement. Is Raffi yeah. like volunteering himself to do the Katy Perry, Bruce Springsteen, like all play in before your rallies thing for Bernie Sanders? Except Bernie Sanders has Killer Mike and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I don't know yeah, if he needs Raffi. No but they Raffy. haven't written songs for him yet. There's still time. <laughs> okay, that's all we can handle for this week. Uh, let us know if you like the show. You can find us on Twitter. Send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. And don't forget, this Saturday we'll be live on elections.npr.org with coverage of Saturday's Democratic primary in South Carolina. And we'll have a Super Tuesday, super duper preview edition of the podcast for you next week. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm super Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And I'm Scott Tetro. I cover tech in the campaign. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>